Are you an accredited investor looking for a new opportunity to generate passive income and build the retirement of your dreams? Then elevate your investment game with Viking Capital, where wealth meets wisdom. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just starting out, Viking Capital can help guide you towards financial freedom through passive real estate investing. With strong and transparent underwriting, Viking identifies low-risk opportunities with the goal of preserving investor capital and maximizing long-term growth potential. And their accessible and responsive investor relations team will help you understand how each investment will impact your unique financial goals. With $800 million in assets acquired, more than $230 million in equity raised, and more than 5,000 units under management, Viking Capital is your path to early retirement. To learn about Viking Capital's latest investment opportunity, which is available for you right now, visit go.vikingcapllc.com forward slash best. That's go.vikingcapllc.com forward slash best to get started today. Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHerCon is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, Promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. I've counted on a lot of those relationships and experiences from my playing days when things didn't go my way. And I easily could have pouted and burned bridges and said, screw you to people, but I didn't. And my later 20s is reaping the benefits of those decisions. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Best ever listeners, welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. I'm Slocum Reed, and I'm here with Max Brown. Max is joining us from Los Angeles. He's a commercial real estate broker, primarily focused on office tenants at Kennedy Wilson Properties, which is one of the largest landlord retail platforms in Los Angeles. Max, can you tell us a little bit about your background and what you're currently focused on? Yeah, thanks for having me on. Welcome. This will be fun. Currently focused on office tenant rep, primarily, primarily in Southern California. My group's a little bit different than other brokers and advisors in my space in that we do operate nationally, which is exciting. and allows us to run with more corporate clients as well. My background, I grew up with a heavy athletic background. I played all the sports growing up. I played football in college. I was a quarterback at USC from 2013 to 16. 
played at Pitt in 2017 as well and gave the NFL a run for a little bit there and ultimately pivoted into a marketing path. And I did that for a few years post-football. And then at 25, made another career transition to get into brokerage. I'm 27 now, turning 28 years shortly. So I've been in brokerage for two full years, going on three, which for those that know trajectory and the timeline there, I'm past the dog days of brokerage, but still fresh and new into the industry. But so far, it's been great and certainly love working in this capacity. Max, I see this conversation heading in a couple different directions. Two kind of key themes I'd like to focus on, and we'll just see what comes up from there. I had a five-ish year career as a full-time residential real estate agent, transacting sales and not tenancy in Cincinnati, Ohio. There are a couple of differences between office tenants and residential home sales. There are also a couple of differences between Los Angeles and Cincinnati, but I'm going to ask about what the office market looks like in LA right now. But first I have to tickle my own curiosity here. Let me start by saying that in Cincinnati, we as real estate agents, commercial or residential flat out tell all tenants that there's not really much incentive for us to represent them because there isn't any sort of tenant agency commission or fee that is customary to be paid here. So the idea in Cincinnati of someone focusing on a thing that is never paid for is pretty intriguing. So let me ask, what does office tenant agency look like from a brokering perspective? Yeah, and I've certainly heard that and experienced that a little bit through my investment sales work as well. I mentioned I do a lot of leasing, but we have done investment sales. And I know what you're referring to in terms of the tenant side, not always being allocated a fee there. But on the leasing side, it's customary in all the markets that I've worked on from an office leasing perspective and a retail leasing, but an office leasing perspective that the tenant rep broker, their side will be allocated a fee. In fact, The fee for tenant reps is actually larger than the fee for landlord reps in the office leasing world. It's customary, at least in Southern California, for the office tenant rep to receive a 4% fee and the landlord side to receive 2%. And that's largely because as the tenant rep, you control the deal in many respects, right? You have the desired tenant that is going to occupy space from the landlord side, and you can somewhat create a market and a bidding war for, hey, if you have a group with 10,000 and need for 10,000 square feet, and there's five class A office buildings in a market, well, you can let those five landlords compete over your tenant in terms of whose terms. And so you're negotiating that, negotiating terms, but I also think you bring value to your client in that you know the elements where you can negotiate, right? You know TI packages, tenant improvements, you know, how much can you push there? What's the appropriate allowance to ask for there? You'll know rental rates and where to push there. You'll know certain deal points, whether it's protection versus COVID, whether it's security deposit, what's appropriate, what's not appropriate, all those different elements. You're advising your client on what is industry standard. And that brings a level of value that I can't speak to the residential side, but it brings a level of value where tenant rep brokers are commonplace in my world. Especially that last part makes a lot of sense. Commercial contracts within real estate are much less boilerplate than residential contracts. The variables, the terms are so much more deal specific or tenant specific. Real quick, that 4% tenant agency commission and the 2% listing, what is that based on and who pays it? It's based on the total value of the lease. So if it is a 
$2 per square foot lease for five years, which is fairly standard. That's 60 months. It's over the entire term of the lease, all 60 months, you are getting 4% of the value of that lease. And obviously us brokers know that you're splitting a chunk of that with your broker, the group you work for, for most of us. But yeah, that is the overall value of the entire lease. The value being all of the rent that will be paid by the tenant. Correct. Gotcha. I have a small office building here in Cincinnati. Individual office suites for white collar professionals like therapists, accountants, and architectural designer people who meet one-on-one with their clients. And I was thinking if you brought me a tenant to sign a one-year lease for one of my office spaces, your 4% commission would be $288. It's funny you say that. I have done a deal very similar to that where I got paid 300 bucks. So it was helping out a family friend, but if I'm going to do the work, hey, 300 bucks is what a Valentine's Day dinner out here in LA. So I'll take it. Yeah, that's a very nice Valentine's Day dinner here in Cincinnati. Max, you make it sound in Los Angeles like tenants, at least tenants who are represented by brokers in the commercial space, particularly office, have a lot more control over the process and the terms of a lease than landlords do. Is that specific to this kind of late COVID, post-COVID market that we're experiencing at the beginning of 2023? Is it just now that they've had so much control? I think it's a great question and astute observation. I definitely think it's a byproduct, especially in my lane of a post-COVID world in that the commercial real estate office market in general is struggling right now. So if you do have a that has a requirement, you're the date that everyone wants to take to prom type of thing. So naturally you have more control in a different era or a market where maybe like, let's take the Austin office market, which was much more competitive the past few years. I mean, they still have vacancies, but I know in like 2020, they were much more competitive there where there's not tons of vacancy. Well, then maybe the pendulum will swing back towards the landlord side and they have the control. So I think it goes in cycles. Every cycle is different. I think every market's different and every deal is different as well. You mentioned the therapist use a little bit there. If you're in a market that only has full of open therapist suites and you happen to have one of them as the landlord and there's a bunch of interested groups there, well, then naturally the leverage goes on your side. So it totally depends on the deal, but I'd say at large, currently the office tenant reps, if you do have a requirement, certainly have more leverage than the landlords. Max, tell us a little more specifically what's happening in LA right now. What kinds of spaces are in high demand? Which kinds of spaces are seeing lower demand? And then also what kind of office tenant is moving into LA right now? The spaces that are still seeing substantial traction are the ones that are amenity rich. The higher end spaces. And the reason for that is if you're a CEO or a CFO trying to pull back into the office right now, out of the comfort of working from their home, you need to have amenities that attract them back to the office, whether that's as simple as coffee and barista and as extensive as redoing parking lots into pickleball courts and grilling areas and entertainment areas and just much more open space, natural light. Those spaces are still hot commodities. I would say in Southern California specifically, The Culver City market has done well because you have more of that creative space. I think gone are the days of the much more 80s and 90s where it's office heavy, not a ton of natural light. It's a lot of walls and whatnot. 
now it's all about open space. It's all about collaborative areas. It's all about natural light and feeling like when you go into the office, you're able to interact with your coworkers rather than being on an island. Because if you're on an island, you can do that from home. And now the use of the in-person office is different. There's certainly much more of a collaborative feel. I think the types of tenants that are coming in now, I would say it's not industry specific. We've had law firms. We've had much more creative uses. The groups that we're seeing now are CEOs that are looking down the pipeline saying, I know inevitably I am going to have to have some portion of office workers return back to the office, which it'll be interesting to see as our economy potentially embarks on a recession and leverage goes back into the hands of the C-suite employees and away from C-suite employers and away from employees. That could change the tide for CEOs to say, hey guys, we're coming back into the office because I talk to more CEOs that want people back in the office than the other way around. Obviously, the leverage right now is currently on the employees, and that's why you're not seeing widespread return to office. But our business, as we all know, goes in cycles. And is the office going to go back to what it was pre-pandemic? No. But I do think there could be a cycle that has a brighter future for the office than we currently see. So it's much more of a mixed bag in terms of the type of tendency coming in there, but it's certainly groups that are saying, let me be opportunistic right now and get a rental rate that I wouldn't even be able to fathom three years ago. Let me lock that in now for five years to come and maybe get a space that was out of my budget, out of my range three years ago. That's now in my wheelhouse. I know I want to see my employees in person. Those are the types of groups that are thinking that way that are the ones that are ultimately signing leases right now. Max, while our listeners and I are trying to visualize what this space looks like, is there a fairly defined size of space or frankly size of tenant number of employees that you work with or that you're seeing find success in getting new spaces leased right now? Yeah, we do a lot of corporate services work, and I frame it that way, where we're representing publicly traded companies, and we handle their portfolio nationwide. The value add for them is that we're their one brokerage team rather than having to work with a different brokerage team in every market. So from an efficiency standpoint, we certainly serve that need. And I say that because a lot of the groups that were much more of the bigger users, right, the groups that needed 20,000, 40,000, 60,000 square feet, We're seeing them cut their space needs in half. And I would say we're seeing a lot of requirements in that four to 7,000 square foot range. And the reason why is that's big enough where you can feel like you can have a substantial amount of employees come in, even if they're rotating or not coming in frequently. It's a big enough space where you can really have a true presence there and have a couple conference rooms, private offices, open areas, but it's not so big where you have huge chunks just vacant. So I would say... The four, five, 6,000 square foot, that mark, I would say, is the most popular mark that once had 10 to 15 to 20,000 square feet that in their mind say, I still want some sort of home base, but I don't need the full expansive space that I once had. I think that's a popular square footage requirement for groups that are still active in the market. Scaling down into the four to 7,000 square foot, that makes a lot of sense. Multiple conference rooms, a handful of private offices some common area. I see what you're saying there. We'll get back to the show with a first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. 
Are you a real estate investor looking to break into the multifamily investing space? Have you heard of MFIN Con happening in Charlotte, North Carolina, June 12th through the 14th? The Multifamily Investor Nation Convention is a place to learn from over 60 high-level apartment investors while networking with more than 700 additional investors. If that's not enough for you, A-Rod, yep, Alex Rodriguez, 12-time Major League Baseball All-Star with over $700 million of commercial real estate assets, will be live and in person speaking at the event. Also speaking is the one and only Dr. Robert Cialdini, the godfather of influence and the award-winning author. I personally love his books. So be sure to secure your tickets to this live in-person event before they're gone. Go to MFINCon.com for more details. Sponsorship opportunities are also available. Visit MFINCON.com today. Use the promo code BESTEVER to get $200 off your tickets. That's MFINCON.com. When it comes to the hybrid work schedule that I know like the Wall Street Journal has referenced several times in the last year or so. Are you seeing anything like that play out in obviously in the size of space that these companies are looking for because they're going smaller, but are you seeing it play out at all in the terms of the lease agreements that you're negotiating? That's a good question. I would say the first part of that is, yeah, hybrid work to no one's surprise is certainly the new norm in terms of gone are the days of everyone going in five days a week. I have not seen it reflected in the lease terms, though. And the big reason why is if you're going to rent space, it's your space 24 hours a day, seven days a week and holidays if you want it. The idea that you're going to have some sort of co-working situation, I haven't seen widespread use of that. What's most common for me is groups doing a Monday through Thursday work schedule in the office with Fridays optional. That's popular to see or even three days a week. But in terms of the, to your question, the specific lease terms, I have not seen hybrid specifically packed that a little bit, I guess, with build out. Some of the build out parameters of, we call it hoteling from a desk standpoint. So if four years ago, everyone had an assigned desk and as a result, you needed more square footage because of that, because Joe and Sally and Tim were coming in every single day. Well, now it's not necessarily the case because they're on a rotating schedule. Every team's coming in in a different capacity. So you're having build outs that reflect that where it's much more open desk where you can come in one day, plug in, and then move all your stuff out on the same day rather than having to be an established desk for someone that's impacting the build out and it's impacting the tenant improvement allowance that comes into lease. So I guess that would be one area. But widespread, it hasn't had a huge impact on the lease terms itself. When it comes to amenities, you mentioned several things, including turning parking lots into pickleball courts. Maybe pickleball, I've heard of it. Maybe it's more of a thing in Southern California than it is in the Midwest that it would attract office tenants back in. But what amenities are you seeing have high levels of success right now for landlords? Yeah, and it's one of those things where the pickleball court by itself won't necessarily attract a tenant back in. But when you combine the pickleball court with outdoor amenities for entertaining, with retail options in the nearby location or on the ground floor, even if you had a workout facility on on the ground floor, which we've seen a lot of office landlords invest funds in that as kind of an all-inclusive type of dynamic, when you pair all of that together, Well, then maybe for the type of person that's on the offense for coming back into the office, well, if they're saying, hey, I can have my entertainment, I can hang out, I can take my lunch break out here, I can take my call out here, and I can get my workout, that's where maybe you attract a tenant back in. And I also think it's a competitive advantage as well. Now, the baseline for what's normal for a Class A office building, it's risen. 
it's become higher of what a corporate user from an office perspective expects when they are signing an office lease. And if you don't have one of these elements, you're simply not going to get the requirement. So in that regard, I think it has leveled up the tenant experience, but it's one of those things where I don't think one specific factor is going to get you back into the office, but when you combine them on top of one another, you give people options. Well, maybe they're much more attractive to get out of their den and into the office building. Max, for you, what makes an office space A class? And also what would make it B or C? I would say class A for me is high rises in a central business district that are upgraded to the current standards, whether that's environmental, whether that's just the overall quality of the building. If it's been updated in the past, call it 10 or 15 years, and it's a tower, I would say that usually falls into class A. I would also say creative spaces that have been updated within the last 10 years to have amenities and appliances that reflect current times. That's class A. Class B are spaces that are still nice. They're not run down, but they haven't seen the level of upgrades that you would look at as recent. There's still a level of the building being worn. Again, it's not low-level buildings, but it's certainly not spaces that an Apple or a Google or those types of users would be moving into. And then Class C are buildings that need some love, that need some upgrading, that are certainly more value-add opportunities for investors that are looking at it through that lens. Again, they're still functional. They still provide a certain level of value, but I would say those buildings haven't been updated in the past 20 years or so. Class C spaces probably also make more sense for tenants who are going to have to do a fairly heavy build out to meet their own needs, wouldn't they? I imagine the Class C space has a lower base rent, which justifies more T&I or more expense on behalf of the tenant to customize. I think there's some truth to that. I think it works both ways. I think to stay on that example, the Apples or Googles, they're going to have very high build out demands and specifications, but they're still going to go into a class A office building because they just know that they have the budget to withstand that. To your point though, if I am a group moving into a class C office building and I'm not as sophisticated as some of those groups, yes, it certainly leads to the possibility of having more dollars allocated for a build out, but every situation is different. The reason that a class C building even exists is because the landlord has not invested capital into improving the building. So you just never know. I think some groups that aren't as client facing or don't need the amenities or just want a place to call home here and there, maybe they're more apt to take in a class C space. It just totally depends. And when it comes to the upgrades that make the difference between the classes, can you give us any tangible examples of what? differentiates a B to an A space with specific upgrades? Yeah, I would say just high level, the terms A, B, and C are somewhat subjective just to make sure it's hard and fast. But I would say tangible examples, I really put it to the timeframes, to the years. I would say if you're updated in the past 10 years, that's class A, whether that's finishes on countertops and flooring and updated window lines. Nowadays, it's much more common to have full window lines with heavy natural light. Those are more class A upgrades. Class B upgrades are some of those things, but not all of those things. It's you've touched up the flooring, maybe the carpet, you've repainted, you've adjusted a few walls here and there, but you haven't done everything. And then class C, to my earlier point is you haven't seen those upgrades. The landlord has not decided to invest tenant improvement dollars to upgrade the building. It hasn't seen that love in the past 20 years or so. 
It makes a lot of sense to put it in terms of years because what those actual finishes are is, of course, as you said, subjective. Max, are you ready for the best ever lightning round? Let's do it. Awesome. What is the best ever book you recently read? Handily, I'm not a huge reader, but I'll say I loved Bob Iger's book, who once was the former CEO of Disney. And the books on his time, ironically enough, he recently just got hired on this past month, which kind of makes the book even that much more interesting. But his biography was my favorite. What is your best ever way to give back? By producing content. I'm pretty active on social media. I share my work and life experiences to my following. And I think that value helps folks. Bit of an interesting question here that you are more broker than investor. I still want to ask as an office broker in LA, what is the biggest mistake you've made and the best ever lesson that resulted from it? Who, like I mentioned, I'm still a relatively new guy in the industry. So the biggest mistake that I made is not prospecting for future leads and getting buried in your current work. I think that's a mistake a lot of brokers make. It's easy to fill up the day with tasks that make you busy right here and right now, but you always got to be prospecting for leads six, nine, 12 months down the line or your pipeline will dry up. I learned that lesson the hard way in probably August of 2021 and have vowed to myself to not do that ever again. Any sales professional who doesn't give that answer is giving the wrong answer, Max. Now I <laughs> want to ask more from the investor perspective. What is the biggest mistake you've seen an office landlord make in LA? I would say not fully vetting the tenant that's coming in to the suite. What I mean by that is jumping just to get someone in there and not being sensitive to the credit worthiness of that tenant should their business operation dissolve in some way. I've seen a couple landlords get burned while they get so excited that a big group's coming in and they do the TI work and they make the space great, but the user itself ultimately folds or their business model changes and they don't have the security deposit on hand to protect themselves. And so you spend all this money building out the space and having this dream client, well, to this dream tenant, two years from then, they ultimately leave for whatever reason and you're ultimately out of luck. So protecting yourself for non-high credit worthy tenants is a big one. That makes a lot of sense. Max, what is your best ever advice? Best ever advice. I'll go classic. Don't ever burn bridges. I had, I mentioned a, but a career for me, I'll keep this short, but my athletic career did not go according to plan. Like I said, college football quarterback did not go according to plan, but my professional life, I have counted on a lot of those relationships and experiences from my playing days when things didn't go my way. And I easily could have pouted and burned bridges and said, screw you to people, but I didn't in my later 20s is reaping the benefits of those decisions. That's awesome. And last question, Max, where can people get in touch with you? I'm pretty active on social, TikTok, Brown Max, Brown as an E at the end, on Instagram as well at Max Brown. Again, Brown as an E at the end. Twitter, same thing. And then active on LinkedIn as well, which is certainly more a uh, real estate friendly audience there. So we'd love to connect with anyone in the biz. Those links are in the show notes. Max, thank you. Best ever listeners, thank you as well for tuning in. If you've gained value from this episode, please do subscribe to our show. Leave us a five-star review and share this episode with a friend you know we can add value to through our conversation today. Thank you and have a best ever day. Hi, best ever listeners. Joe Fairless here again. And one last thing before you go, would you like to receive a short weekly email with proven tips from experienced investors, free tools and resources, and a roundup of the week's most relevant news and best ever content? 
Well, if so, join the community of nearly 15,000 commercial real estate passive and active investors who receive the best ever newsletter. Just go to bestevercre.com forward slash access and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, thank you for listening and have a best ever day.